everybody. Welcome to Busy Living So Busy Living So Busy Living So. It's episode 225 with Jennifer Storm. Hi, Jennifer. Hey, Busy. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm wonderful. I love your name. Thank you. You have a really cool name. It, it, I would never change it. That's for sure. I do. I love it. <laughs> it's it's a great name. And so wait, you've been sober for 24 years. 23. 23. Almost yeah. 24. Almost. Yeah. 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 97. Is that 23? Yeah. 23. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. You know what? You get to the point where you start forgetting. Last year was my favorite year because my favorite number is 22. So it was 22. So I got like these two big ass balloons and <laughs> took all these pictures. And this year I was like, oh, 23. But it's still, you know, it's another year on the planet. Another, another day alive, which is good. And that's amazing. So what was it like and what happened? And what is it like oh, today? Yeah. So uh, my story kind of started in 1987. I was, uh, you know, pretty normal kid, decent parents upbringing, you know, nothing radically different. Both my parents were raised in alcoholic homes. And so they had a lot of unresolved, unidentified trauma. And there's a ton of addiction in our family. But, you know, I was a straight A student, cheerleader, was really kind of going along a, a good path. And then I got raped when I was 12. And it just changed everything, just shattered everything, right? It just, my whole life fell apart in an instant. And nobody knew what to do and nobody knew how to deal with me. And alcohol became my escape. It became how I stopped feeling and I could just, I could run and you know, in, in the early days, I ran into razor blades, I ran into bottles, um, anything I could to do to avoid feeling. And, um, you know, I, I realized real quick, like first time I drank, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, there was no concept of just picking up one or two. I still to this day, I'm like, who does that? Like, what? Why? And that's when I remind myself, oh yeah, you're an alcoholic. Because uh, when people are like, well, I'm just going to go out for two drinks. I'm like, why? What the hell's the point? Um, so, you know, I, I would pick up one and it would go two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight blackout. Right. Yeah. And that's how it never resulted differently for me. And so I started doing drugs pretty quickly. And, you know, that whole, you know, when you're living the life, you're, you're in it. And so, you know, led to some other traumatic incidents. And I had a lot of loss in my life. And um, I quickly, though, what I realized being a rape survivor is that I didn't like the blackout factor because it left me very vulnerable. And I would wake up or come to in places where I'm like, who are you? How did I get here? Obviously, we had sex last night. Pretty sure I don't know your name. And then there would be the instances where it was clearly non-consensual, right? So mm -hmm. there's that separation. And so that scared me. And uh, a friend of mine introduced me to cocaine. And what I realized is that, oh, if I do cocaine while I'm drinking incessantly, I don't black out. And so that became like a great enabler for me. And then it always started with alcohol though. Like I would never just like go out and buy an eight ball. Like I didn't do that. I would be like five, seven drinks in just teetering on that, like, uh oh, and then I would go get the cocaine so that I could drink 20 more drinks and not black out. So it was dangerous and I was very dysfunctional. I lost relationships, houses, cars, jobs, as you know, got arrested, the whole thing. Uh, was very fortunate in my 10 years of, of use that I didn't, uh, didn't kill anyone. I didn't uh, end up in jail for a long period of time. And so I was, I was very blessed in that sense. And uh, 
but I was really self-loathing. I hated myself. I, I just couldn't get a grip. And, you know, when you're running, eventually you run into a wall. And, and for me, I was running from all these feelings, from all this horrible stuff that had happened to me. And it kind of culminated in 97 when my mom died and she died in my arms of breast cancer. And I couldn't drink or use enough to run from that pain. Like it was just all encompassing. And so I thought, well, I, you know, I, I can't stand the way I'm living, but I don't have a playbook to live any differently. So I'm just going to kill myself. And I tried, I tried to take my own life and I had had multiple suicide attempts throughout my addiction. And, but this time was different. I was really fully intent on, on taking my life and thank God I survived. My, um, my brothers found me in a pool of blood and got me to a hospital in time and saved my life. And uh, yeah, so I came to, and then I became willing. Mm -hmm. And that began my journey. You know, I don't know what it was, you know, the, the, they call it spiritual awakening, moment of clarity. I just, I woke up in a psych ward because <laughs> that's kind of where they put you when you try to do that. I woke up in a psych ward. I had these bandages on my wrists and, you know, and, and I was alive. And I, that, that experience was enough to say, okay, that wasn't working. So I'm open. I don't know what's going to work, but I, this isn't happening anyway. And so I was willing to admit that my solution was my problem. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, the way you talked, um, I drank the same way, you know? Yeah. Balls to the walls. Feelings were like, right. And feelings, yeah. it was like, Jesus, I can't have a feeling because I'm going to be Humpty Dumpty. And there's no, all the King's men can't put this girl back together again. Yeah. So let's not even go there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'm sorry about your mom, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. It was, it was, yeah, it was, it was rough. And I, you know, I was young. I was 22. Like I was 22 when I got sober. So like talk about, wow. you know, yeah, yeah. That's the other reason 22 was like a big, the big achievement for me. But, um, but quite frankly, it wasn't a rite of passage or anything. When I turned 21, I had been going to bars since I was 15. So that whole, I was like, whatever, that's, you know, I've been there, done that. Um, but yeah, I had to learn who I was and I had to take advice and guidance. And, you know, I went to a, a 28 day rehab here in Pennsylvania and then I went to a halfway house and then I moved to a completely different town and, you know, found recovery, found the rooms, found trauma therapy, which was a huge piece of my overall healing puzzle. Mm -hmm. um, and I found this amazing gift that we call recovery and, and it, it was hard wasn't certainly wasn't easy. It's a lot of work. Um, but I did the work. I showed up, you know, I, I suited up and I showed up every day. I still do today. And I'm so grateful. The life I have today is, is incredible and it's peaceful and it's honest and it has integrity. And I wake up next to the same person every day. And, and even if I do, even if I wouldn't, I would at least know like, Oh, I know your name. I know who you are and you're consensually here. Right. Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting because you talked about that and there's so many girls that for so long that it happened to them. I was actually talking to a friend of mine about something that had happened to me a long time ago. And, um, and I said, you know, that person, you know, they took advantage of me, you know, how many times did that happen to you? And she's like, oh my God, everybody. And mm -hmm. no one ever said anything for one. There's so much, I mean, I, well, people like to say women and men are the exact same. That's not true physically. I'm just sorry. They are bigger, they're stronger, and they weigh more, and it's a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And then you mix the alcohol, and it's like, oh my God, it, it, it yeah, mm -hmm. it's yep. a recipe for disaster. 
I think this, there's a statistic that's roughly 90% of women that seek um, substance use um, recovery also have a sexual trauma in their history. And, and I think we've done a disservice in our treatment facilities for a very long time at not addressing trauma. In fact, it used to be kind of scientifically a no-no, right? They were like, oh no, only, only focus on recovery because if you add these other layers, it's a, it's a big relapse indicator. And thankfully now, like sociologists and psychologists are coming around to the notion that no, you've got to deal with the trauma and the substance use disorder at the same time, otherwise they will relapse. You know, we're, we're setting the, I always call it putting a bandaid on a bullet hole. Like right. if you don't clean out that wound, that the reasons why that person uses, well, they're going to use eventually. So uh, yeah, I'm a big believer in, you know, do the footwork, do the, do the hard work, dig up those secrets, expose them, be honest with yourself and, and, you know, do, do the steps, do that work. It's so important. It's so important. But that dual diagnosis you were just talking about, it does, they don't have that at every treatment facility. They and don't. they don't really tell you when you show up and they ask them to check for 28, 38, 40, yes. 60, 100. Uh, they say, here, your person's going to be here for 28 days, but they're not going to tell you, oh, by the way, you need to, everybody here needs to get well. You're all sick, you know? Yeah. 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 And usually co-occurring, what I've found just means like, oh, you guys need medication and you don't, right? That's how they split the population. For me, they were like, were you ever sexually abused? I said, yes. They said, then you go to the women's unit. Like that, like that just determined where I went. It was stupid, right? It wasn't truly trauma-informed in the sense that, oh, here's a separate treatment plan for your trauma to help you. Or like, oh, you have bipolar disorder. Here's a behavioral health you know, plan along with whatever medication might be required. So I think we have a long way to go with our treatment facilities in, in being truly trauma-informed, but we're getting there. And I agree with you in that, and that it just, it is in the 90 day thing. What do you think about the 90 day thing? Cause I think it's key. I, well, I think, you know, it creates habits. So for me, recovery, one of the most important things for me was, was structure. I had no structure, right? When I got clean and sober, I was just living whatever, like showing up whenever I wanted, waking up whenever I wanted. I had no schedule, no structure. And so the 90 and 90 was vital because it held me accountable. It gave me a routine and then it became a habit. And, and it's, you know, there's a, there is a lot of science around creating habits. They change your mindset. They change, they rewire your brain and you begin to then behave differently. So I'm a big proponent. I, I think it's really important. Um, you know, I went to probably, sometimes I'd go to three meetings a day because I was also really bored in the beginning. I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't even know who I am. Where do I go? I just need to be around people. So I don't like, I'm not in my head. Um, yeah, so I think it's really important. Yeah, I love that. You didn't know who you were. I had I no idea. I had no clue. I didn't even know like what I liked. So, like I remember my my counselor being like, "So what do you what do you do or what are your hobbies?" I'm like, "Oh, drinking, sex with strangers, drinking. Um, I don't know, putting on too much makeup, pretending to be other people, like I'm losing job. Like I didn't have. So I literally had to like make a list. She had me like make a list. Like, okay, you know, I want you to go home and so I'd like do I like golf? No. Do I like bowling? Sometimes, but I was usually better when I was drunk. Do I like Billy? You know, I had to do all this assessment and you literally do. You have, it's like, it's like being a, like a little kid and learning things again. Um, but what a great, like what a great opportunity to be able to explore. Like one of the things I love about recovery that I think it doesn't get enough credit is that we have this amazing ability to really understand ourselves, which is a gift. 
in, in everything you do in life, if you know yourself, you know how you react, you know your triggers, you know your personality, you're going to have a better, a better experience at this whole shit show called life, yeah. right? Because that's what it is sometimes. And, and so that's a huge gift for me is my self-awareness. I know when I'm off. I know when my thinking is thinking. I know when I need to really dip back down into some therapeutic stuff. Um, and, I, and I make amends, right? I'm not perfect. And when I mess up, I make amends. Yeah. And I love what you said, you know what, and I, what, what you said and what I assimilated to, it's like when you got sober in the very beginning, it's like you planted that tree, right? I was the same way. Like that first year, just making sure I got some strong roots. I want to be like a palm tree, right? In a hurricane. Yes. And yes. yes. So do you still use those tools that you learned oh, at the very daily. beginning? Hell yeah. Daily. Yeah. I'm brutally honest in all of my endeavors. I try to have humility and vulnerability when I can, right? Like I try to always approach situations with humility and vulnerability. I take care of myself, which for me means, and I, we talked about this when we first logged on, I have to exercise. So for me, my trauma, my stuff is very physical. And so if I, and my go-to emotion is anger, which is super fun. So <laughs> I bypass sadness. I'm like, you're weak. And I go right for the fighter. And I, so the vulnerability requires me to take a step back and, and push the bodyguard away, which is my anger. And then look at the sadness or, or whatever it is that I'm trying to avoid. And sometimes I can't do that verbally. And I've known, I found out in doing trauma work and then becoming a victim advocate and responding to trauma and having it in my life every day, it's physical for me. I have to physically get it out. So I used to run and then I hit my forties and my knees were like, no. So now I cycle. I'm, I'm a big spin person. Um, and so I engage in the things that I know will help me synthesize my emotions properly. And if I don't do that, then that's when I can be really like, you know, my character defects will come flying up and out and I don't have as much ability to rein them in. Whereas if I do things like meditation, exercise, sleep, drink water, write, get, get the stuff in my head out on paper. Then I usually show up as the person I am, I am proud to be and not as the person that can get me in trouble. Cause that person's always there. It's always going to be there. And I love that you write, you know, I'd say with 14, you know, at 14 years and I'm just like, all of a sudden right now, it was like a game changer. I called a sponsor that I've been working with years ago. And I said, will you work with me again? And she said, yes, of course. Cause they always say yes. Right. Yes. Um, they're really good work. <laughs> but she, yes. And I was like, what is it? And she's like, you need to do that 10 step. I'm like, what, okay, what really, I, I mean, I'm doing it, you know, I'm doing the prayer and the meditation, but what do you yeah. mean? Like I make amends when I, yeah, I said, I was sorry to my son. Cause I maybe, and I'll start yelling at him or something or my husband. And now it's that writing that you just talked about. Well, it's cause it's pro so there's the act of making amends, which is important, but there's also in that there's that forgiving yourself, processing it, understanding it, feeling the feelings associated with it. Right because all of that matters. And if you just quickly make the amends and then check that off your list and you don't deal with the feelings that led to the action that then led to the need to the make the amends, then you're gonna you're doomed to repeat it or you're gonna start storing up what I call like the trash. I'm a big believer, take out yesterday's trash because you, you can't really bring your full self to a situation if you're weighed down by yesterday's trash. So 10 steps are big, they are, and, and they've gotta be active. Yeah. yeah. 
And gratitude. Do you do gratitude still? I do. I do gratitude lists. I try to lead with gratitude all the time um, because there's always something to be grateful for. I don't care who you are, where you are, just breath in your lungs, right? There's always something to be grateful for. And I, I think it's incredibly important. It takes you out of you. So when did you decide to become an advocate? I was in college and I ended up becoming a victim of a hate crime, actually, because I had come out of the closet in college and I got really involved in activism work. And so someone targeted me and I became a victim. And I didn't even know victims had rights. I didn't know this whole field existed. I was going to college to do drug and alcohol counseling because you know I was like, oh, this is amazing. This was given to me. I'm going to give it back to everyone I know. I'm going to 12 step the world. And, um, and then I learned about victim advocacy and I was like, oh, it just, it spoke to me in a really deep cellular way and I was hooked. Um, so I, I moved to Harrisburg from college, got involved in victim advocacy and I've been here ever since. And I, you know, it's, it's so important. And when you're, when you've gone through a, a justice process, disempowered and disenfranchised and with no voice and no support, you appreciate how important it is for other people to have that. And so I've done everything from, you know, homicide, direct homicide response to like going to the crime scene, doing death notification, family, you know, doing funerals, taking people through the whole trial, rape, rape advocacy, accompaniment, domestic violence, protection from abuse orders. I've done, I've done it all. Um, and I, I just love it. I, it's such important, important work. And today, did you, did you just recently write a new book? I did. I wrote two. So I, I kind of republished Blackout Girl. So Blackout Girl was a book I wrote in 2008. And Hazelden is yeah. my publisher who I adore. Um, you know, I approached them about a year and a half ago and I was like, you know, that book is more relevant now than it was when we published it. What if we polish it up and I add some things that I've learned in my experience? And so they loved that. And so we decided to, to put it back out into the world. And ironically, my book came out in 2008 at the height of the economic depression, right? The down, that big at the bubble with the housing bubble. Yeah. And so I thought, oh, you know, it needs to get a, a good life. And then the freaking pandemic hits. I was like, apparently I am book doomed because like, I don't know. So then I said, you know, I really want to write a follow-up. And so Awakening Blackout Girl is more, it's a memoir slash workbook. And it's more memoir than workbook, but every chapter has a mantra and an exercise and just something to think about and process um, but I really think it's like a handbook. A lot of people ask me, well, okay, it's been 20, you know, 23 years. How do you do it? How did you, how did you heal all of those wounds? So it's definitely more focused on sexual trauma in addiction and how that leads to negative coping mechanisms. But then how do we, how do you heal those really, um, those real deep wounds from sexual trauma? Because there aren't a lot of resources We're, you know, especially not a lot of resources in recovery. Right. Yeah. So I'm really proud of them. Yeah. So when you were 22 and you were walking, you went to three meetings a day, which is what you said, how did you go in there and you were like, you're young, you're cute, uh, you know, and you're like, and it's a lot of old people. And I know I'm almost positive, like 24, almost 24 years ago, there weren't a lot of young people going, like there was no Ekipa or any of those things going on, nope. right? Nope. I think there was like one youth meeting that, so, so let's just talk about who I was, right? So I, I still was very um, not 
who I, who I was meant to be. And so I wasn't bringing a great self to the party. I was still wearing like the cutoff porn star shirts and I was still overly sexualized and, you know, probably gotten a lot of really unhealthy relationships with older men in the program when I came in, um, which is a problem that, you know, needs to be addressed too. But, but, you know, you're, you're sober, but you're still not who you are supposed to be. And so, but I think, you know, so people either immediately wanted to like, take me in because I was like their little sister or it was I was overly sexualized and they just wanted to you know use me right and so I quickly started to learn to discern who the people I could trust but I'll tell you what I had a lot of really hard moments in the beginning because when I, I was young and I was really overly trusting because I was so like you know like when we're early recovery we're like freaking light bulbs we're like oh and I love you and you must have the best intentions for me because you're here and you're sober and that is not the case and so I had to learn quickly that like you gotta you gotta have a little bit of a tuned radar and and stick with the, that well it's that whole concept stick with the winners and so you know I, I struggled with that a little bit in the beginning but um I, I quickly found some really good people that had long good healthy sobriety and they took me under their wing and I had an amazing foundation. I mean, I spent my first, I moved to State College, Pennsylvania in 98, and I was there until 2003. So I was in the same spot for a really long time, and I had a really strong embedded community there, which was important. Great so sponsors. Is, great and sponsors. Prince, and when you were in State College, they didn't have, there was no recovery that was associated with the school at that point, university, right? At Penn State. I started the first on-campus AA meeting ever. Yes. Okay, I mean, it, was, it was awesome. And we, I had my little, you know, my little bucket yeah. um, with all my stuff. And I, you know, I got a conference room cause I, you know, I was very involved in student advocacy. So I was able to get a room and then I promoted it. And we, you know, it was mainly, it was more staff and faculty that came, right? Cause the students were hungover and they weren't coming, but it was a great space. and. You know, even when I started early in my career, like I'd go to conferences and I'd be like, why don't you have uh, meetings at noon? Like, where's our space? You've got cocktail hour, but what about us? And so I always carried that into any place that I went because we're everywhere. Right. Yeah. So it was fun. I don't know if they still have them. I hope they do. But yeah, I used to do nooners at Penn State. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, the only, I do know that they do because I do know some young people that have actually got, have gotten sober, even at 17, 18, and then they go to Penn state and there is a huge recovery. There is, I don't want to say huge. It's not like the fraternities, unfortunately. Yeah, they have housing now though. Yeah, they yeah, do. I know they have sober housing, which ugh, I would have loved that. The reason I didn't live on campus is because there wasn't a safe place for me to live. So I, I had to live off campus to protect my sobriety. So I love that they have sober housing. It's so well, cool. look at that. You were like a founder of this whole cool thing. <laughs> <laughs> because it is, because at 22, you hear so many people that come in and they're like, I'm too young. I'm not even legal, or I'm not even legal yet. And being 22 and jumping on, and do you have the same sponsor? Because I know you just mentioned amazing sponsors. Do you still have that same sponsor? So I've had three sponsors, um, all amazing, incredible women. They have all died. Oh, wow. So I have, I have said, and I have a very morbid sense of humor. I've stopped asking people because I'm concerned for their well-being. So I don't have, I currently don't have a sponsor. Uh, my first sponsor was an amazing woman who just really struggled with heroin addiction. And so I stayed with her for a little bit and then realized that there was still some unresolved stuff there. 
And she unfortunately ended up dying of an overdose years and years later. Then I found this other amazing sponsor who was gay. And that's when I was starting to kind of come out. And so that was really helpful. And then I kind of, I kind of outgrew her. She was a lovely, beautiful woman. Um, she ended up getting hit by a car, like freakishly. And then I met like my soul sister. I, I met Maggie, who was my sponsor for um, probably 13 years um, and just was like my sister. I mean, just, yeah. And she ended up getting leukemia. Um, yeah, yeah, and dying. She, I was there, I, was, I held her when she passed mm. with her daughters and her boyfriend. It was awful. It was, and so I have, um, yeah, I haven't had a sponsor since. Wow. Yeah. And are you, do you still go to meetings after? I all do. I do. Not as much as I used to, especially in this environment. Like I, I log on to like in the rooms or all of our meetings here locally are now on Zoom. Um, and so I'll try to jump on one, but I, I miss being in person. Like I, we used to have these awesome 7.30 in the morning women's meeting um, right up by the, the river over here. And I miss, I just miss gathering. Um, so I, I would like, I would like this to go away so that we can gather again. That would be nice. It would be, I mean, I'm doing the zoom thing like every day I host a meeting at 8am, but so what, what have you, so now that you have all these tools, but you like today, what do you do like to make it through the, this crazy pandemic that we can't see, we can't touch, yep. can't feel at least with our alcoholism that we fight every, I don't think we fight it every day, but it's around us all the time, right? You go into a bar, you go into a restaurant, you go anywhere, you watch TV. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What have you been doing during these, this pandemic to keep yourself balanced? Reading a lot, writing a lot, trying not to eat. I have been successful at not gaining the COVID-15, so I'm happy about that. But I've been working out like crazy. I, I will say that I've really, I, I, every day I get on my Peloton, but through this process, I was actually um, diagnosed with cancer because, you know, 2020 is not too much of a bomb fire, you know? Yeah. And so I had to have like a radical hysterectomy in October. And so I went through that and then I got sepsis and then I was back in the hospital. So it, my life has been a, like a dumpster fire for the past couple <laughs> months. And I'm just starting to feel like myself again. Yet literally the day that Awakening Blackout Girl came out, I was supposed to be doing all these events. And I instead I was in my surgeon's office scheduling a radical hysterectomy. Now, thankfully they got everything. It was super, super early on. I don't have to go through chemo or treatment. So I'm incredibly blessed in that place. So um, yeah, but it was, it's, ugh. I was going to say, what did you do? Because with us addicts and alcoholics, you know, fears a bit, because that anger thing is always fear. So I, at least I believe that the anger is I'm scared. I'm not going to keep something I have, or I'm going to lose something that I want. Right. Yeah. So, oh yeah. So here you are and getting that diagnosis and you're like, I can imagine like, holy shit. What? Yeah. Am Tell me how, what Just did you do? dove into my normal coping mechanisms, right? Like, so leading up to surgery, it was getting on my bike every morning and still doing what I normally do, talking with my wife, just communicating about everything, laying every conceivable fear out there, you know, because I lost my mom to cancer at, at an early age. So of course I'm 45. Um, she was 45 when she was diagnosed. Now she had breast cancer. I had uterine. Um, and so there all that stuff's going through my brain. Like, oh my God, is this, is this it? Am I on the slow path to my mom's death, you know, death? And and so it was all that. So it was processing, talking. I do these live self-care Sundays on my Instagram account. So I, I came on and I, I talked about it. I was open. I, I you know, talked about my fears, shared my fears. And I, I received. 
which is not easy for me because I'm a doer. I'm a type A, I'm an Enneagram eight. I'm used to giving, 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 giving. And I had to really stop and let myself receive. Mm. And that was huge. And it has been huge for me. Well, I'm so happy that you're okay. Me too. Me too. Just that's not that long ago. No, no. I, today's six weeks. Today's six weeks from my surgery. So I'm like, I can fully pick up my son now. I'm like, you know, we can fight club again, which is like a little game we play. Um, yeah. So I'm finally back to like being fully, you know, okay. And my scars are healing and yeah, you know, um, but it's life. It's life on life's terms. Like I've always said, recovery doesn't mean easy. You know what I mean? Like you get sober and it's not that it doesn't mean your life is going to be easy because that's not how it is. But if you have this foundation, like we've talked about, if you've got those roots and they're deeply embedded, then nothing can rock you that, that much, right? Cause you just, you show up and you do the footwork yeah. and sometimes you cry your eyes out. Sometimes you scream. Um, and sometimes you question everything and then you wait till it's revealed and then you learn the lesson. It's a life beyond you would ever imagine. It really is. It, it really it's is. such a gift. Like I, whether you're an alcoholic, a drug addict or not, everyone, like there should be a class on this. <laughs> like recovery should be taught everywhere because it's just a course for living in a good, ethical, honest way to live life. And, and what a gift. Now, I mean, we're motivated by not wanting to die or, you know, go back and become the people we were. But like, what a beautiful framework what a beautiful blueprint for life it, it's uh, it's an amazing life it is amazing it is. you're amazing so where can people find your books uh anywhere so anywhere books are sold uh, libraries if you don't have the means to, to buy a book blackout girl is in every library if it's not just ask them they will order it um indep independent booksellers amazon barnes and noble anywhere you can buy a book they are there um and then i am all over the internet i love in social media so i'm storm 119 on instagram which 119 is November 9th. That's the day I got sober in 1997. And so, yeah, just reach out to me. I love talking to people. I'm, I will respond to everyone who messages me because I just, I love meeting other people in recovery and send me the link for those 8 a.m. meetings. If I'm allowed, I'll zoom into one of your meetings. Oh yeah, please. I'd love it. Oh my God, I'm going to get you to speak. I'm going to get you to speak at one of my meetings. I'm totally oh, I would love that. I'm putting you on the, I'm putting you on the roster. All right, go so you can be even be in your PJs with your cup of coffee right next I to like it. AM, so it's perfect. I like thank it. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. This is super so fun. Glad, I'm so glad you're okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Me too. The most, have the blessed and the best holiday season you can. Okay. I will. You Wait too. A minute. I'm just you blowing your kisses. You, thank oh my you. God. Enjoy the sunshine. Send me some beach pictures. <laughs> I and everybody who's listening, please remember you can always reach out. You can reach me at busy, B-I-Z-Z-Y at busylivingsober.com. And Jennifer, again, thank you so much. And until next time, keep getting busy living sober. Bye-bye.